Problems and pessimism tend to overwhelm the daily news cycle. What gets less attention are the incredible solutions governments and organizations have devised to solve some of the world's most pressing issues. That's why senior fellow and editor-in-chief of The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute, Jonathan Tepperman, set out to release an issue dedicated entirely to exploring solutions to problems around the globe called The Fix. The Bush Institute's Chris Walsh and Hannah Johnson authored pieces for the issue, and they joined Jonathan and host Andrew Kaufman to discuss success stories and the lessons we can all learn on working across divisions, and even what we can learn from the Barbie movie, on this episode of The Strategist After Hours, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. We have convened another Bush Institute roundtable on this episode of The Strategist, and we've we've got a new lineup this time to talk about the latest issue of The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute. Our lineup this week is first headlined by Jonathan Tepperman, the editor-in-chief of said Catalyst, and he's also a senior fellow at the Bush Institute. Jonathan, thank you for traveling into Dallas just for this? Question mark? King thrilled to be here. (laughs) (laughs) That is the kind of excitement I like to hear. love it. All right. And uh, also here is also known for his uh, for his swearing is Chris Walsh, the director of Freedom and Democracy. Chris, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Actually, not a swear. That was my revolution, my my resistance in my household. I came I come from a family of swearers. And so my my counterculture was to not swear. So good for you. What, What is your vice then? Oh, I have so many. Fair Too enough. many to get into. Fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll pour, you, pour you another glass and, and cover that later. Um, and making her first appearance on The Strategist is Hannah Johnson, the Program Manager for Global Health at the Bush Institute. Hannah, thank you. Thank you, AK. Um, so we are here to talk about the latest issue of The Catalyst, um, which is called The Fix – uh, it is not about the 2006-2007 or 2005-2006 NBA Finals, uh, where the Mavericks really got got jobbed on that. It is it is actually about solutions. And so, Jonathan, could you tell us about this theme and and why you picked it? Sure. So, I have, as a journalist, been interested in solutions based reporting and analysis for many years, and it came from a few sources. The first was the overwhelming and building sense of pessimism in the the public at large, which I had become um, increasingly preoccupied by. Um, but as a journalist, um, I also felt that while uh, there were lots of reasons for that pessimism, that um, my field was responsible for it as well. Um, I fe- feel felt and continue to feel like there's such a um, if it bleeds it leads sensibility in not just news but analysis that the bad news tends to crowd out the good. Um, I also, as a student of foreign policy, had become really in frustrated with the literature in in the field over the years, which I felt like spent the um, uh, vast majority of its time um, admiring problems and very little time focusing on how to solve them um, or uh, stories uh, of of how problems had actually been solved or success stories um, of organizations, institutions, governments around the world making great progress. 
Um, and so I decided to commit myself first as a book author when I um, wrote my first book back in 2016, um, but then as an editor to, um, to making this central to the work that I do because the fact is that there are answers to all kinds of problems that preoccupy us today that nobody is talking about. And my hope is that by spreading the word, um, we can not only fight this pessimism that I was alluding to earlier, but we can actually start to transmit really useful models and strategies and, and, and um, sort of game plans that, that others can follow. Was it hard to find the, uh, I think there are 12 pieces in this issue, if, that, if that's right. Was it hard to right. pick 12? Um, it was um, it was hard to narrow them down. So um, that's good to hear. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, what, what's amazing is when you start looking, the stories are everywhere. There's not, as I said, much media coverage of them, so you have to dig, um, and you need to have good sources. Um, but when you start talking to people who are actually involved in doing stuff, as opposed to reporters who are involved in covering them, um, you find that they, you know, they they have lots of stories of of um, um, accomplishments that they've um, managed to make or other folks that they're aware of that are doing stuff. Um, in order to get the stories to really work, I decided to add a few conditions. So um, I wanted stories that were, well, you know, obviously um, I wanted stories of actual successes, not just hypothetical ones, um, so that there was a proven track record that we could look for. Um, I wanted stories that were somewhat surprising. So, you know, there's an old joke in journalism that like worthwhile Canadian initiative is the most boring headline of all time, right? <laughs> because that's exactly what you expect to come out of Canada. And polite. Right, yeah. exactly. So the, a, a story of, um, say, Mississippi, which has been the perennial... Um, uh, laggard in reading education in the United States, all of a sudden becoming one of the leading states in the country. That's really surprising because nobody suspects that from Mississippi. And so it makes for a much more dramatic story. So we tried to find elements of surprise. We tried to look for stories that had great characters, like in um, uh, Chris's story about Mono Meal and, and Bridge USA. Um, and most of all, I really wanted stories that were replicable. And that meant finding instances and anecdotes that were not so entirely dependent on a specific set of circumstances that other places that didn't share those particular circumstances couldn't hope to replicate them. So when we, we sort of used that or created that as a rubric, it made it pretty easy to distinguish which ones were going to work for us and which weren't. So you mentioned Manu Meal, Chris. You uh, who is that's what you wrote your piece on. So tell us more about about your piece and Manu and um, how that came about. Sure. Well, you you and I both had the opportunity to meet Manu when he was here. We did. Uh, we did a strategist with. We him. did. It was it, the breaking new ground back then. Indeed. Chris, did I just mispronounce his name? Is it Manu and not Manu? I, I so this is a debate out there, but I, I hear people pronounce it both ways. When I speak to him, I always say Manu, and he's never corrected me. Okay. So. There you go. Manu, if you're listening, I apologize. If I got you name wrong. <laughs> and so does Chris, just in general. Indeed. <laughs> for everything. For everything. Um, no, but, but actually, 
part of part of Manu's uh, appeal and what he's doing is he creates a situation where you can make mistakes where it's okay that you don't see eye to eye on everything. But let me, before I get into that, if I can, I just want to back up and say, well, why is this a problem? It's, we're, we're talking about talking to one another, essentially. You know, Arthur Brooks, who I like to bring up a lot. Mm-hmm. In fact, as soon as the restraining order he has against me drops, I look forward to speaking with him again. But until then... I want, to re- I, and I want the tape rolling for that. <laughs> I cannot wait for it. One day, one day it will happen. If you're, if you're listening out there... We, we, you're next <laughs> to be on my list. But what, what Arthur Brooks noted several years ago in a New York Times piece was we're living through a culture of contempt. And what contempt is, is it's anger, which is an okay and healthy emotion, combined with seeing the absolute worthlessness of the people around you, the people that you're angry with. You don't see their dignity or anything redeemable about them. And it creates this toxic, polarized environment. In fact, Secretary, uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, under both the Bush and Obama administration, said outright, this is a national security Also a strategic guest, by the way. I mean, I, I've, I'm going to name some more. Don't worry. <laughs> good, good. Get, get your strategic bingo card out. Um, but but why is this why does this matter well it, it it affects us as people and individuals but if you're frustrated with the government well if if you don't see any value in your opponents and the government is structured by our founding fathers to encourage persuasion and negotiation and building consensus well, then you better get used to your Congress doing nothing. Uh, in fact, we've seen that play out in recent weeks, unfortunately, where it seems that folks would rather do nothing than get something for their constituents. So we have to create an atmosphere where we can actually have a conversation with one another, and we're not turned off immediately by the fact that we disagree. So enter uh, Manu Meal, uh, a brilliant 24-year-old guy. I, during our strategist episode, I called him our Alexander the Great, because he has done so much at a young age. He's inspiring, and he's impressive. Uh, and he started this organization with some other, with other leader, young leaders across the country called Bridge USA. And uh, this, the, the, the kind of, his story uh, begins in 2017 on the campus of uh, Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley, where uh, some of our listeners may know this name, a guy, a very controversial guy named uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, a very uh, far-right provocateur uh, who w- made, made a living at basically uh, calling out folks on the left about things like uh, free speech and, and gender identity and that kind of stuff. Uh, and he understandably got a lot of pushback from people because they saw him as peddling hate. Uh, when he came to speak at Berkeley, there were even uh, there were outside protests that caused the campus to shut down the the discussion uh, to the point where people were throwing Molotov cocktails. I mean, it was it was that serious. Manu recounts how he's walking from his class and he hears helicopters overhead and windows breaking. Uh, so it is against this backdrop that Manu says, you know, he was a he was a pre med student. He said he was he he calls himself some dude, which I think he's far more than that. But he didn't expect to be involved in politics or issues like this. But he says to himself, "This is not healthy. This is not going to solve anything. We need to get people into a room and just give them space to talk to one another." Um, and he did that, and it was successful. And they just it was an old fashioned grassroots campaign. Hey, we're going to talk about this. Why don't you come on out? Tell your professors and, uh, you know, would you tell your students that we're having this conversation? Let's get people to come and participate. 
and they were extremely successful. Um, he, he even tells the story about how one guy came in and said, you know, I'm just here to protest you because I don't think we should be having this conversation. Um, <laughs> There's some irony. Indeed. But he, he, the, the guy who was the, the protester, I'm using air quotes there, comes in and says, well, you know, actually that was really valuable. I learned something about the other side of this, this conversation that I didn't expect. Um, and, and Bridge USA was kind of formed from there. So is Manu a, a superhero with some sort of special power that made him able to do this? Or, <laughs> you know, how can, to Jonathan's point, if we want this to be repeatable, how do we, how do we find more and empower more Manu meals out there? Well, like, he'll say he's not a superhero. Uh, I, I, I think he's an inspiring guy, as I said. But, but no, I, I think his, his description of him as just some dude is something we should all take to heart. Um, when, you, when you think about issues that upset you in your community, when you think about things that spur you to action, say, no, something is wrong here. Manu is an example to say he, he wasn't even thinking about politics, and yet now his life is consumed by how do we bring people from opposing uh, ideologies and beliefs and equip them with skills to have a temperament to actually engage in a conversation so that we can actually find solutions. Um, I think anyone can do that. And you see that, you see that in our programs from, from people in our global policy space, folks from North Korea, folks from Burma who are making differences in their community, our leadership programs that we partner with other uh, presidential libraries like Presidential Leadership Scholars, our uh, Veterans Leadership Program. These are just folks in their community who have ideas and are actually working to make things better. If I can tell a quick story because I have to get this in. We've got plenty of, of no. recording time left. So we've got plenty of tapes. Oh, we can go. <laughs> we're going to edit this out, though. Well, yeah, uh, I would edit it all. It's, we're all here. His answer was actually just 15 seconds long as far as the record shows. <laughs> we'll get more Hannah in here in a second. So when you think about having difficult conversations and hearing different perspectives that challenge your own beliefs, and that, and that's, that goes both ways, uh, Hannah and I have talked oh, no. about the Barbie movie a lot, <laughs> yes. you know, it, it, and, the, and the two kind of dividing pieces are the genders, male and female. Uh, and I, in a weird quirk, I ended up watching both ha- uh, the Barbie movie in halves. So we watched the first half and I watched the second half and I'm watching this with my wife. And the first half I was like, I don't get, I don't get it. I don't see it. Uh, you know, and I'll admit, I, even though I think, I think there are legitimate arguments here, I heard talk of patriarchy and I kind of, you know, I gave the roll of my eyes, which you shouldn't do. That's a sign of contempt. That's Arthur Brooks 101. Mm-hmm. Good call. But then we <laughs> <laughs> it always comes back to Arthur. It does. But then we get into the second half of the movie a few nights later and there's a monologue in there where one of the characters is talking about all of the pressures that are put on women, all the expectations that are just completely unfair and unrealistic. And I heard it, and I thought, I said, I get this. But then I look over to my wife, who I should ask permission to tell this story, but we can just edit that part. Yeah, well, that's fine. And she's it's fine. She's, she won't listen anyway. She, <laughs> that's she, a fair she point. gets she plenty of listen. you at home. She does not need more that in her in her ears. <laughs> she she was tearing up. And she said, that's, that's so right, that these unfair and sometimes contradictory expectations are placed upon us. And I listened to listen, which is an important thing. That's part of what Manu calls the holy grail of having these conversations. I didn't interrupt her. She was telling, you know, this is, this is something real. This is something I feel. I, uh, <laughs> I didn't say, well, you're just some woman, and I don't really care what you have to say. I said, no, you're my wife, and I care about you. And this, I see this is having an effect and an impact on you that maybe in a way I had never considered and 
I didn't, I didn't insult her. I didn't attack her. I said, you know, I, I love you, and, and I'm, I'm really sorry that you felt this way, and I, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way before. Um, and that's just a simple thing, but it's, it's also hard to have that conversation because you have to say, well, I was maybe wrong or I misjudged this. And having that space, which is a place like Bridge USA creates in a facilitated way, that's their, that's their secret sauce, but just having this conversation with someone who I, who I know and love and trust that I wasn't maybe giving them the time they needed was really beneficial. And I, I think it helped me understand her better. And I think she felt like she was heard and she appreciated that. And that, I think, in turn strengthens our marriage and our relationship. So I just share that story as this actually works. Lessons from the Barbie movie. Indeed. Thank you, Barbie. You, you said you had the conversation with Chris, Chris about the Barbie movie. I'd love to hear what you thought. What I thought about the Barbie movie? Yeah. I thought it was just incredibly well done. You know, it's a movie that I think that you can't take too seriously, mm-hmm. right? It has. It's meant to have some sarcasm in there. You're not supposed to, you know, Ken thinks that horses run the world. How can you take that seriously? Uh, but it does a really great job of showcasing all the different parts of what it means to be a woman to have pressure to be a good mother, but to also have pressure to be a good boss or to be a good coworker or to be really good at the job that you're doing. Um, which is what I was trying to tell Chris. And I'm glad that, that you saw that and that you kind of listened to it and you heard it. Cause I think you think, Oh, it's all about overcoming the patriarchy, but no, at the end of the day, it's like men and women can work together mm-hmm. to create Barbie and Ken land. <laughs> Beautifully said. Thank you. And in Barbie and Kenland, we sometimes have great um, policy that that you know Chris's example of with Manu Mule was it was, a, was smaller scale or is, is growing in scale. Growing. Yeah. Um, Pepfar, which is what your article features is, is about, is a you know obviously a large government program, sometimes called maybe the most successful foreign aid in history. Um, so, but you dove into specific a specific element of it. Tell us about about your piece and yeah. and how you came across it. Yeah. So I think just kind of looping back to what Chris said too, you mentioned Secretary Bob Gates, who, for those of you who don't know, was Secretary of Defense for both President George W. Bush and President Obama, which is a true testament, I think, of bipartisanship and being able to kind of bridge the divide and work from purpose. Um, He's a big proponent of PEPFAR in his book, Exercise of Power. He said that it was the most well-conceived non-military exercise of national power that was possible. Uh, We're celebrating the 20th anniversary of it this year, um, which is really amazing. It's also up for reauthorization. It's a program that saved 25 million lives over 20 years. It's allowed 5.5 million babies to be born HIV-free, which, in my opinion, makes it the most successful foreign aid program in history. So the piece that uh, myself and Dr. Deborah Burks wrote really focuses on that sweet sauce of PEPFAR um, and looks at an example of the Dominican Republic and Haiti specifically. The Two countries share the island of Hispaniola. It's about 30,000 square miles, which is fairly small. Mm -hmm. But they have really big differences between the two of them, especially when you look at the economy, the size of poverty, um, and HIV rates. So just for example, the Dominican Republic has a GDP that's six times higher than Haiti. In Haiti, there's one doctor or one nurse for every 10,000 people. I mean, can you imagine waiting in a line of 10,000 people to go see the doctor? Right. Um, and people in the Dominican Republic live 
10 years longer on average than those in Haiti. So there's just a small border that separates the two countries, but there's these really big differences, um, which, as you can imagine, leads a lot of people in Haiti to cross that border and to go seek health services in the Dominican Republic and to try to find um, employment or better opportunities that's just a really short um, kind of walk away. So when Dr. Burks was the global um, AIDS coordinator in PEPFAR, her team found that the Dominican Republic was doing really well. Their HIV prevalence rates or the number of people uh, getting HIV was getting significantly smaller over probably about a 20-year period. Then around 2017, 2018, those numbers started going up again, kind of out of nowhere. So they took a look at the data and they tried to figure out what was going on. And they realized that Haitians, both documented and undocumented in the country, had a prevalence rate that was three to 5% higher um, than their Dominican counterparts. So that led them to kind of take a look and see what was going on in the country. And they found that there were these other kind of social issues that were happening outside of the health system. A lot of Haitians faced a lot of prejudice. Um, everything in the Dominican Republic is in Spanish. Haitians speak Creole. It's a completely different language. Um, they, there, like I said, was a lot of stigma, a lot of prejudice. They had issues seeking services. They felt that maybe they would be deported or they wouldn't really be taken seriously if they went to the doctor to get checked out. And so that led to their rates being higher. And PEPFAR took a look and they said, okay, how can we make sure that people coming into the country are healthy and that we keep the people in the Dominican Republic on the right track to reaching their goals? So they used, again, PEPFAR's secret sauce, which is partnerships. You know, they took a look at these community-level partnerships like churches, faith-based organizations, different kind of mentorship groups, and they put them into the community and they connected them with people who needed care. And they were able to get those numbers under control. They were able to also bring together the two country governments. And so they created what they called a country pair. So they took ambassadors and um, ministries of health and governments from the Dominican Republic and from Haiti they created a plan with them together and kind of forced them to work together and to take a look at that data and to figure out how they could make progress. Now, uh, hold on a second. As the editor of Hannah's piece, <laughs> I have to jump in here and please, say please. Jump in. just why I thought this was such a cool story and why it appealed to me so much and I wanted it included in this issue of The Catalyst. Um, and you, it's all in what Hannah just said. Number one, you see how... Um, it's a surprising story, right? Because nobody expects an AIDS, HIV success story to come out of the poorest country in the world with some of the worst social services in the world, right? Number one. Number two, um, they connect what is an old story, the battle against HIV, to what is an ultra-contemporary story, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, the global migration crisis. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <this> chokes you <laughs> up. It does. You, you feel see how very passionately about this. Yeah, it's the the global migration crisis which all of us are dealing with and reading about happening around the world, um, and um, um, brings PEPFAR into um, uh, direct 
um, sort of confrontation with the global migration crisis and shows how the two are connected. And third, it shows the ongoing and contemporary relevance of this 20-year-old government program, which remains as important today as it was all the way back when it was first authorized 20 years ago. Do you want to come onto the global health team? Absolutely. <laughs> I think you could do it. Because you're completely right, right? Like 25 million lives have been saved by PEPFAR, but that doesn't mean that the work is done. There are certain populations like young women, like migrants, like vulner other vulnerable populations that have a long way to go. And it's all about being able to bring people together under this larger umbrella of PEPFAR and to figure out what the issues are and to really tackle those key gaps so that we can reach you know, a world where HIV AIDS isn't an issue and hopefully a world where it's just completely gone from existence. Well, what's frustrating to me too is, you know, Jonathan, to your point, this is, this is policy that's here. It's doing great things. And, and yet we look at it, it's getting, it's getting caught up and it might, it might not get funded. And it's, 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 it's my bat boggling that we're trying to solve all these problems. And yet we might be just be creating one instead of taking a solution that's already there and, and finding new ways to do it. Well, I exactly. I mean, this is the premise of the fix, right? Yep. The, the, the answers are out mm -hmm. there. And you have no better example than PEPFAR of a program that has not only worked, but has worked spectacularly. Mm -hmm. And yet it's not getting the attention that it needs. And it's, um, as you say, um, the very continuation of the program is now at risk. Yep. Can I add? Can I add? Because I see, and maybe you'd say this is a stretch, but I, I don't think so, but I have a bias here. I just see so many of the solutions that, that Hannah was just talking about in terms of PEPFAR, bringing these two countries in Haiti and the Dominican Republic together, that I see in the Bridge USA strategy. You know, you're creating a space. It's as simple as that. You create the space. Uh, you're empowering people at, at local levels. In the case of Bridge USA, they're empowering local chapters where students have the freedom and autonomy to use local issues and use that to spur their conversations. And it creates camaraderie, it creates investment, it creates trust. So I just, that theme, those themes are there in these solutions and they're, they're simple, but they're hard to do in practice. And I just, right. I'm very impressed by that. Well, I would say they, they create trust, but they also create sustainability, mm. right? The end goal for PEPFAR is to make it so that these partner countries, keyword partner, mm -hmm. are able to take this program and use it and integrate it into the health systems that are there so that it's going to last way beyond the lifespan of PEPFAR. And when you want to create sustainability, you have to look at the grassroots level. Yep. And that's, what's, that's what the program's done so well, is bringing in those community leaders so that they can take that program and they can create accountability, transparency, and all of these great things that we see in democracies, Chris Walsh, um, <laughs> and integrate it into those systems. Um, and you're right, it's a program that exists, a program that works well. It was able to kind of flex its muscles during the COVID-19 pandemic and during Ebola, all of those systems were already in place and they were able to really outshine and make sure that countries could keep going and they could survive. Another thing I love about PEPFAR, it, you, you mentioned numbers and data almost as much as Chris mentioned Arthur Brooks when he, when he was talking. <laughs> that's a very global health thing. You mentioned data as much as you mentioned Arthur Brooks. But it's fair. You know, that's, that's by design in PEPFAR, right? That, this right. isn't an accident. No, it's not. And Dr. Burks, uh, her ears are probably ringing right now <laughs> because she really emphasizes um, data. And that's kind of where her voice especially comes through in this piece. Data is extremely important in global health because it allows you to see what the issue is. You need to have data-driven results. When you think about the sweet sauce of PEPFAR, you think about the bipartisanship 
the fact that when we work together, we can do really big things and we can create this big program. You think about sustainability and community-based partnerships, and you think about data-driven results. You need to be able to have that data in place, like in the case of Haiti, so that you can say, or in the case of the Dominican Republic, so that you can say, well, these numbers look really great, but what's the issue here? How can we take this aggregated data or disaggregated data and look at maybe if it's men or women that are having bigger problems? Is it this population versus this population? And then you can really target those issues with specific interventions um, to create bigger results than you would have if you just kind of threw spaghetti at the wall and (laughs) saw it stuck. So I think that's what made the program so successful, but it also made the case of the DR in Haiti even possible um, in the first place. So let's pivot now. Jonathan, you are the editor, but also an author uh, in this one. And you wrote on a, a really interesting piece on, on the Ukrainian military. And, and I think, I know I was one of the people that when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, I was like, well, this is going to take about a week, maybe a week and a half, two weeks, and we'll see what happens next in, on the European front. And here we are, it's been almost, we're closing in on two years now, and Ukraine is still standing. Um, and your piece is about how that happened. So talk, can you talk some about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, you weren't the only one who thought that back in February 2022, right? So did the U.S. intelligence community, along with the vast majority of American um, and international experts on um, international affairs in Ukraine in particular. Um, and part of the reason they thought that um, the Ukrainians would never hold out um, has to do with um, an enormous... Um, overestimation of the capacities of the Russian army, but it also has to do with an enormous underestimation of the Ukrainians. So to understand why that was the case um, and how Ukraine did what it did, which is to take a rotting post-Soviet military um, that barely deserved the name and within about eight years turn it into a force capable of standing down one of the most powerful militaries in the world, um, you go back to 2014. That was the year that Russia first invaded Ukraine. Um, at the time, Ukraine had a military that was huge on paper, but that thanks to neglect, mismanagement, and corruption, barely existed in reality. Um, of 130,000 troops that the country thought that it had, only 6,000 were actually combat ready. Of 800 tanks, only 12 were usable. And the officer and intelligence corps had strong pro-Russian sympathies because the two countries have been so closely related for so many years. So when the fighting started back in 2014, when the Russians first invaded, the Ukrainian, the Russians, excuse me, managed to cut through the Ukrainian lines like butter. There were mass defections among the Ukrainian military, especially in Crimea. And the Ukrainians got into so much trouble that within days they were begging the U.S. military for basic kit like boots and blankets. That's how unprepared they were. But crises can have an enormously effective um, uh, impact on um, countries. They have this amazing way of concentrating the mines, right? And Ukraine's president at the time, um, um, it was actually, the, if you may recall, it was the ouster of the previous president, um, who, which had triggered the Russian invasion. Um, so... Um, Ukraine only had an interim president, um, but they quickly held elections. And the new um, 
President Petro Poroshenko, who many people had underestimated, um, saw that if he didn't act quickly, he was not going to have a country to govern for mm -hmm. much longer um, because it was going to be Russia. Um, so he embarked on a massive military um, program, not just of renewal, but really of reinvention, which involved creating um, a army um, from the ground up. And his basic idea and insight was to look to the West. This was a time when um, Ukraine um, and many other Eastern European countries were hoping to join NATO. And in fact, Ukraine had been promised a number of years before um, that it was going to get to join NATO, but nothing had ever happened of that. So the Ukrainians decided, well, if we build it, they will come. Let's just create our own NATO army um, or an army what um, uh, policy wonks refer to as one that's interoperable, that one basically, which means that one that can function as a NATO army so well that it could fight alongside one. Um, let's uh, aim for and try to achieve all the sort of best practices um, used by the best militaries in the world, which are NATO militaries. Um, and that will not only increase our chances of, um, uh, of eventually being admitted to NATO, but it will help us fight the Russians mm -hmm. um, at the same time. Now, another big part of the story, of course, was massive outside aid, especially from the United States. Um, since Just since February 2022, when the Russians invaded for the second time, um, Washington has poured more than $44 billion of support into the Ukrainian military. But if you look at the examples of Iraq and Afghanistan, which also enjoyed enormous amounts of American support, you quickly come to appreciate that that is not a sufficient explanation for why Ukraine was able to succeed as well as it could, I mean, as it did, precisely because when um, the United States pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan and those militaries, which had also enjoyed by some estimates trillions of dollars in support from the United States, were forced to fight on their own, they almost instantly collapsed. So this raised this very interesting question in my head that I wanted to answer, which is why did massive military support, I mean, massive Western support for the military work in the case of Ukraine when it didn't work in these other countries? And what I found was it was a answer of a lot of different parts. First of all, Ukraine is obviously a very different country than um, Iraq and Afghanistan sure. are. It is highly unified. It is highly educated. It is very technologically sophisticated. But there were other key parts to the story as well. One of them is that leadership really, really matters. And, you know, we in the policy community sometimes, um, and as, you know, self-regarding, um, um, uh, <laughs> cosmopolitan urbanites, you know, we tend to underestimate the value of, um, of the human component of, yeah. of leadership. Um, but look at the difference in Afghanistan and Ukraine. Um, when the Taliban closed in on Kabul, Ashraf Ghani, who is the head of the Western backed, um, government of, uh, Afghanistan got on a plane and flew to Dubai. When the Russians closed in on Kiev, by contrast, and the Americans offered the mm -hmm. same deal to President Zelensky, his famous response was, I need ammunition, not a ride. Mm -hmm. not a ride. And if he had left the country um, uh, during that first week, it is 
I think, overwhelmingly likely that Ukraine would have collapsed as quickly um, as, as Afghanistan did. But of course, he stayed and it didn't. Um, so leadership matters. That's my sort of second point. The third is experience. Between 2014, what people often forget was that Ukraine was in a constant state of war. It's not like there was one war in 2014 and then a second in 2022. The Russians who invaded in 2014, they never left. So the Ukrainians spent the um, intervening eight years in a constant state of warfare, and they decided to use that fighting to their advantage. So what does that mean? They made sure to rotate all of their um, new army, which they were rapidly building and increasing the size of, through the front lines in the Donbass, in the eastern uh, region of Ukraine where the Russians were present, ensuring that within just a few years, they had built one of the most battle-hardened militaries in the world. So much so that when Western trainers started coming in during those years and working with the Ukrainians, um, within a few years, the students were teaching the teachers because, of course, no American service member has fought against a Russian um, in many, 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 many years. Um, and the same goes for the, the members of all Western militaries. Mm-hmm. But the Ukrainians have all kinds of experience in how the, Western, in how the Russians fight, which they use to their advantage. Um, and then, um, and, and this also can't be overstated, the um, Ukrainians were incredibly motivated. Now, this happens... Um, when you get invaded by an outside um, country, right? You're fighting for your very survival, and that has a very powerful effect um, on on morale. Um, And this manifested in in numerous ways. For one thing, um, it just turned the Ukrainians into much better fighters than the Russians because they were so much more motivated. I mean, half the Russian or more recruits who were started fighting in Ukraine in 2014 literally didn't know what they where they were. They thought they were still in Belarus, let alone what they were fighting for. Whereas there was never any question in the minds of every single Ukrainian um, what the stakes were. Um, but it also manifested in the form of massive civilian support. And there are a ton of great examples of this starting with the fact that when the Ukrainian army, as I alluded to earlier, did collapse in 2014, tens of thousands of ordinary, untrained Ukrainian citizens took up arms themselves, joined civilian militias, headed to the east, and started going toe-to-toe with the separatists and with the regular Russian army. Um, Since 2022, the Ukrainians have raised hundreds of millions of dollars among ordinary folks, the vast majority in donations of less than $30, all of which has gone to support the Ukrainian military. Um, And then you've also seen all kinds of civilian organizations um, crop up to pitch in in in, um, all sorts of different ways according to the skill sets of the Ukrainians involved. So folks with um, scientific and medical training have formed civilian paramedic corps and are now f- um, working alongside soldiers at the front lines to patch them up as soon as they got um, wounded. Um, all of these 
brilliant Ukrainian IT specialist either went into something called the Ukrainian IT Army, which was a, um, a civilian hacktivist corps um, that has launched hundreds and hundreds of what are known as distributed denial of service attacks against the, the Russian military. So effective that they've managed to take off the board what was everybody, not just the Ukrainians, considered Russia's biggest advantage, um, uh, at, maybe after manpower in 2022, which was their very feared um, cyber army, which mm-hmm. has really been neutralized in this campaign. A DDoS attack can really... Stop you fast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then the Ukrainians have done it um, as well with drones, taking this very sort of cyberpunk approach to um, buying off-the-rack civilian drones, in some case literally just duct-taping grenades to them and f- sending them over um, the the Russian forces. Um, and examples that go on and on and on and Necessity on. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, in so yeah. many ways. And the Ukrainians have proved that again and again and again. So, I mean, it's it's an incredibly inspiring example of how um, when an entire society gets together, um, it is a capable of accomplishing such enormous things, including standing down a country um, many times larger than itself and a military with a budget that's more than 11 times greater than their own. And now the downside is that you know, we, we're looking at repeatable things. And so in an ideal world, this wouldn't have to be repeatable because people you know, wouldn't be invading other countries, but obviously this, that's, not, that's not where we're at. Is, do you think China is watching what's happening there? Absolutely. There's no question that both China and Taiwan are watching what's happening, and they're drawing different lessons. I think in the case of the Chinese, um, the number one lesson is, well, maybe two, number one lesson is think twice before invading Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, because um, this is sure what's... I hope so. Um, the, the, you know, um, to take a step back, Vladimir Putin has managed in very short order to accomplish the opposite of every single one of his um, uh, priorities and goals for invading Ukraine. Not only has he not managed to conquer the country, but he has managed, rather than drive spikes and divisions um, inside into the Western alliance, um, he has managed to do what no Western policymaker has been able to do in 75 <laughs> years, which is unify, unify. Yeah. Europe, unify NATO, um, unify America, um, and the rest of the West in this really extraordinary way. Um, what the Chinese, I think, have also learned is that if they do plan on invading Taiwan, they're going to need to win their war so quickly mm-hmm. that um, the outside powers won't have time to mobilize um, to come to the, the Taiwanese uh, aid the way that the, um, the West has for Ukraine. Um, Taiwan is aware that that is the lesson for the Chinese. So they're doing everything to make sure that the Chinese aren't able to do that. So you've seen major shifts in the way that the Taiwanese think about their own military in just the last year. For example, one of the big arguments between the U.S. and Taiwan in years past when it comes to military support is that the Taiwanese have tended to favor these very um, flashy... Um, high price, dramatic military defense systems like fifth generation 
just, which simply means state-of-the-art fighter planes mm-hmm. um, and other def- big defense systems that are not going to be very effective um, in fighting over such a small territory. What they really need are much less sexy but much more um, and often less expensive um, 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 military equipment that will light, allow them to fight asymmetrically, not mm-hmm. to go to toe-to-toe with the Chinese, but to um, use hit-and-run tactics, guerrilla tactics, um, and the like to, um, to, ex- to, to, to turn China's great asset, which is its enormous size, um, uh, against it. Yep. But the Taiwanese are learning other lessons as well. And um, perhaps the most important one comes out of the fact that while Biden has now made four or five off-the-cuff statements suggesting that the United States will come to Taiwan's aid um, if it's a fact by China. It remains official U.S. policy um, that um, we are ambivalent about um, what we will do um, in the case of a war between China and Taiwan. And we, um, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the United States has no declared policy that it will intervene militarily if China attacks. Um, What Ukraine means for Taiwan in this context is that if you don't defend yourself, nobody's going to do it for you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The Ukrainians are very aware that there is a fair degree of ambivalence about support for their own war within the United States. They see the same reports about um, divisions within Congress um, and weakening support for um, the Ukrainian um, campaign among certain sectors of the Repu- Republican Party, and they know that the best way to counter that is by being successful, because it is much easier for any party in any country to support a successful war and a successful ally um, than one uh, that is not, especially given how understandably burned a lot of Americans are feeling after the experiences of Afghanistan um, and Iraq. Um, So what the Taiwanese know is that um, they're going to have to mobilize their entire society um, to um, take the... Make, take matters into their own hands, and that only if they do are they likely to get um, Western support. Um, and at the end of the day, they can't count on that Western support. It is ultimately up to them whether they manage to hold out against the Chinese or not. Um, and they are already mobilizing in a sort of um, national, society-wide way the way um, the Ukrainians have as well. Well, hopefully it won't it won't come to that, and that and they'll deterrence will be uh, enough. You know, we've we've this this has been this has been great. Everybody needs to to read this issue of the Catalyst slash catalyst um, I think before we leave, Chris, can you tie what the uh, that Ukrainian military to the Barbie movie for us, please? <laughs> well, well, the first point is. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to think about it at least. Think about it. Okay. Well, thanks y'all so much for, for doing this and for interrupting your day and, and giving giving away your lunch hour too, which I know everybody's hungry. So And, and we, we know we didn't chew while, while talking, luckily. So, um, But thanks y'all again for, for spending this time. Absolutely. Thank I want to thank you, Andrew, and I want to thank especially Chris um, and Hannah and all the other fantastic authors who contributed um, their brain power to this amazing issue of the Catalyst. Well, and there'll be many more to come. But this one, Bush Center.org slash Catalyst. 
to read the fix, visit bushcenter.org catalyst. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Let us know what you think at The Bush Center on your favorite social media platform. Thank you for listening.